Some opportune remedy must be found quickly for the misery and wretchedness pressing so unjustly on the majority of the working class. For the ancient workingmen's guilds were abolished in the last century, and no other protective organization took their place. Public institutions and the laws set aside the ancient religion. Hence, by degrees it has come to pass that working men have been surrendered, isolated, and helpless to the hard-heartedness of employers and the greed of unchecked competition. The mischief has been increased by rapacious usury, which, although more than once condemned by the church, is nevertheless, under a different guise, but with like injustice, still practiced by covetous and grasping men. To this must be added that the hiring of labor and the conduct of trade are concentrated in the hands of comparatively few, so that a small number of very rich men have been able to lay upon the teeming masses of the laboring poor a yoke little better than that of slavery itself. That was an excerpt from Rerum Novarum, an 1891 encyclical of Pope Leo XIII on capital and labor. And this is the Liberation Theology Podcast, a weekly look at the basic concepts of Latin American liberation theology. I'm your host, David Inchauskas. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode 5 of the Liberation Theology Podcast. Last week, we discussed the relationship between Marxism and liberation theology with Dean Detloff. And this week, we have another relationship and another guest, Dr. Marcus Mesher, Associate Professor of Christian Ethics at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, and author of a freshly published book, Ethics of Encounter. The relationship we'll discuss is between liberation theology and Catholic social teaching. So it's fitting that Marcus is with us this week because he's a specialist in Catholic social teaching and quotes from Catholic social teaching pepper his book as well as quotes from liberation theologians. The chapter of Mysterium Liberationis from which I draw to frame our conversation is the concisely named Liberation Theology and the Social Teaching of the Church by Ricardo Antoncic. We had such a vibrant and rich exchange that our conversation will take the form of two episodes, this week's and next week's. Now we'll get into the history, content, and importance of Catholic social teaching itself. When did it emerge? What is it? Why is it relevant? Next time, we'll talk specifically about the relationship between Catholic social teaching and liberation theology, and we'll also explore his book. You won't want to miss either show. Catholic social teaching itself is fascinating, and its relationship to liberation theology is even more fascinating, and Marcus is a great guy with whom we'll look at both topics. So let's get to it. And 
Marcus, welcome. I know you as a colleague and friend at Xavier University, uh, recently tenured, and congratulations on that, professor of theology. And I know you as the author of the book, The Ethics of Encounter, published in 2020 by Orbis. But please, Marcus, tell us some more about yourself, your background, and the story of your interest in Catholic social teaching and liberation theology. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate this opportunity to be with you today. Yeah, so I'm originally from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, was educated by the Jesuits starting at age 14, and from Market High, continued right down Wisconsin Avenue to continue my Jesuit education at Market University, where I studied English and Spanish, theology and political science, and worked as a youth minister for a couple of years in the Archdiocese of Milwaukee, and uh, really enjoyed conversations with young people about the intersection of faith and service and social justice. Uh, as part of my work as a youth minister, I led immersion trips to Guatemala through the Archdiocese of Milwaukee and the School Sisters of St. Francis. And we went to a community in Northern Guatemala called Aldavera Pass. And this was a community of indigenous Mayans and resettled refugees from Guatemala's 36 year civil war. These were refugees who were originally from Southern Guatemala but during the Civil War had to flee and spent a number of years in refugee camps in Honduras. And then Honduras decided they had overstayed their welcome and that they needed to return to Guatemala. And it wasn't safe enough for them to return to their home villages. So they were resettled in Northern Guatemala where these indigenous Mayan people were already living. And these school sisters of St. Francis were trying to bridge the gap between these indigenous Mayan individuals and families, and then these resettled refugees. In, in a part of Guatemala that is very rural and north of Coban um, in the countryside, and there was no running water electricity. And so the school sisters of St. Francis were really inspired by Catholic social teaching to try to lift the voices of these Guatemalans so that they could appeal to their government for running water, electricity, for access to education, healthcare, housing, you know, all the basic necessities. And uh, it was really sobering to spend time with the Guatemalans and to, to hear about their, their plight and, and the condition. You know, a, a lot of the Guatemalans, they had uh, been corn farmers for generations. And then after NAFTA was passed, you know, these trade agreements that really benefit the United States, it was actually cheaper to go into town to a local supermarket and buy corn from Iowa than it was for them to raise and sell their own corn. So uh, it just, as you can imagine, destroyed the market for corn and all these people whose only livelihood that they had ever known was to raise and sell corn had just evaporated because of these trade agreements. And as you can imagine, when when the jobless rate goes up and there's there's no way for people to provide for their families, desperation goes up. And so there were some people who turned to alcohol. There were some people who turned to drugs. Uh, there are some people who got poached by gangs uh, or who were victims of extortion and torture by gangs. And so there really a lot of desperation. And, and I remember I was playing soccer with some kids one afternoon after some English and Spanish classes. And this boy, uh, Kevin, Kevin in English, he invited me to meet his, his parents. So he, he brought me home and I was walking home with him and talking about his life. And, and uh, when I, I encountered their home, uh, it was a very simple shelter, you know, put, put together by twigs and a dirt floor, no running water, electricity. And Kibbing's father was taking dried 
corn cobs and beating them uh, with a stick to try to beat off the kernels. And he was stripped at the waist, just bareback, sweating in 100 degree heat and 100% humidity, working like an absolute dog. And, and I asked him, you know, how much uh, would you probably get for, for all this labor? And he told me it'd only be about five quetzales, which is a pittance in American dollars. And I just, like, it blew my mind away that he was working just like a dog for, for pennies. I mean, it, I, I don't think I would be bothered for, for that kind of sweat equity for just a, a few pennies, especially since it was going to take him hours and hours and days and days to collect the corn harvest the corn, take it somewhere where someone would actually buy it and either sell it for animal crops or to grind up into tamales or tortillas. And I asked him, I, maybe it wasn't a polite question, but I asked him, I said, why, why bother? Like, what, why are you doing this if, if you're working so hard for so much time for just so little money? And he looked at me like I had three heads, you know, like, how could you ask me this kind of question? What is the alternative? And he paused and um, he just said, I que luchar. You, know, you have to fight. Uh, you have to struggle. And that always hit me that, that, that I think liberation theology at its root is not, not only a, a response to the cry for life that comes to us from the poor and the marginalized, the people who've been rendered insignificant or non-persons, but it also is a call to join in the struggle for the fullness of life and, and to be part of that, to roll up our sleeves, to put some skin in the game. Uh, to draw near and to be shoulder to shoulder with people who are just clawing tooth and nail to survive. And so I, I've never forgotten that moment, even though it was you know more than 15 years ago. And, and I feel like my, my work as an academic, as a college professor, as a husband, as a father, as a Catholic, my work is to respond to the call to be part of that struggle for life and, and for life in abundance for all. I hear in that story, Marcus, a an experience, a, a personal experience of maybe what Gustavo Gutierrez or Medellin would call the poverty of solidarity and, and being in solidarity with someone in this moment and asking them these questions that are leading to a questioning process and that questioning process continuing and expressing itself in your own theological studies. And think of Gustavo Gutierrez, again, speaking about theology as a second act and beginning with the life of the poor, but then the theological reflection stemming from that life and from that personal experience uh, of shared life with the oppressed. And I wonder, Marcus, some folks listening to the podcast are probably familiar with some elements of Catholic social teaching, or maybe they've heard about it a little bit. But since you have such expertise in this area, Marcus, maybe you could give us a refresher about the basic points of Catholic social teaching, both in terms of how it emerged historically, as well as its content. Yeah, so Catholic social teaching it responds to the signs of the times as Jesus tells his disciples to pay attention to the signs of the times in the Gospel of Matthew, that we look around and consider what is the human experience today and how are we being called and empowered by God to promote the, the fullness of life for all that Jesus says that is why he came, you know, in the Gospel of John chapter 10, verse 10, so that all might have life and life in abundance. And that, that doesn't mean heaven or, you know, uh, in the hereafter, but right now, and you know the the documentary the documentary heritage of Catholic social teaching really begins with Rerum Novarum, 
this encyclical that comes out in 1891 from Pope Leo XIII, who's looking at the plight of workers in in Europe, you know, who are being exploited by the Industrial Revolution. And Rerum Novarum, you know, is roughly translated as on the condition of labor. And that that is usually pointed to as kind of the birth of Catholic social teaching, but it doesn't come from nowhere. Catholic social teaching draws on scripture, it draws on tradition. You know, if you look at the footnotes of these documents, which are very often papal encyclicals, starting with Rerum Novarum in 1891, you know, the most recent uh, encyclical in this canon would be Fratelli Tutti, which just came out in October of 2020, thanks to Pope Francis. That, you know, the, the footnotes are either biblical passages, previous encyclicals, or uh, the writings of previous cler- clergy members and, and bishops and saints. So, you know, very often St. John Chrysostom is found in the, no- in the footnotes where he has these really prophetic homilies about how, you know, those of us who hoard our, our belongings or, or are guilty of greed, that we are actually stealing from what is rightfully the poor's. And Thomas Aquinas talks about the universal destination of all goods. That really puts a question mark on the absolute right of private property. And so you can see throughout this canon of dozens of encyclicals and pastoral letters um, that, that include the, the pastoral letters of, of bishops' conferences. So for example, the USCCB's Economic Justice for All pastoral letter in uh, the 1980s is, is part of the, the body of a Catholic social thought. The, the bishop's letter in 1971, uh, Justice in the World from the Synod of Bishops as part of this body, that, that there are these principles that really try to try to present to us uh, a way of trying to respond to the signs of the times. And it's important that this is not, you know, that Catholic social teaching is not viewed as an ideology or as a third way between individualism and collectivism or between capitalism and communism. And, and sometimes it is presented in that way as, you know, like an alternative. And if you'll allow me, I just want to read this passage from 1987, Pope John Paul II's encyclical Solicitudo Rei Socialis, where he addresses this point. He says, the church does not have technical solutions to offer, for the church does not propose economic and political systems or programs, nor does she show preference for one or the other, provided that human dignity is properly respected and promoted. But the church is an expert in humanity, and this leads her necessarily to extend her religious mission to the various fields in which men and women expend their efforts in search of the always relative happiness which is possible in the world in line with their dignity as persons. Whatever affects the dignity of individuals and peoples, such as authentic development, cannot be reduced to a technical problem. That is why the church has something to say today about the nature, condition, requirements, and aims of authentic development, and also about the obstacles which stand in its way. In doing so, the church fulfills her mission to evangelize. The church's social doctrine is not a third way between liberal capitalism and Marxist collectivism, nor even a possible alternative to other solutions less radically opposed to one another. Rather, it constitutes a category of its own, nor is it an ideology, but belongs to the field of moral theology. And I, I think that's really important because I think a lot of Catholics believe that the, these magisterial teachings are things that Catholics have to blindly follow. And that's not actually the point of the magisterial teachings. The point of the magisterial teachings is to help with the process of our conscience formation. So in 
the Catechism of the Catholic Church, the church teaches that every human being, by virtue of their humanity, has the capacity to know the will of God, has the capacity to judge between right and wrong, by virtue of being human, that our conscience is inherent. And it, in addition to being a capacity, it is also a lifelong process of formation. So it's not the same as going with your gut or, you know, we think of Jiminy Cricket on our shoulder or an angel on one shoulder and a demon on the other, that this is really an activity that comes from consulting scripture, tradition, the natural law, and our rational thinking, and human experience. And, and I'll point out too that conscience literally means to know together. So although the catechism says that the conscience is the sanctuary where we hear the voice of God or the vicar of Christ, you know, Christ's representative on earth, that it, it actually would be better to think of conscience as a process that is dialogical where we consult these sources of moral wisdom, but we also share how we see it. And then in conversation with one another as church, we come to understand what is right, true, good, and just. And so the point of Catholic social teaching is to highlight moral principles to assist in our conscience formation as part of that see, judge, act process that was popularized by Cardinal Cardine or some people might be familiar with the pastoral spiral of Holland and Henriot, where you start with insertion, you know, of really paying attention to your social location because there's no view from nowhere. And what you see is shaped by your social location. And then you do the theological reflection and the, and the moral discernment. And then you, you try to act in a way that is just, and then, then evaluate your actions and to figure out, you know, did I hit the mark? I, I always think it's worth pointing out that the word for sin in the New Testament is hamartia, which is an archery term. It means to miss the mark. So it's not as much about rule breaking as it is a misuse of our free will. And so the point of Catholic social teaching is to help us use our free will as God had in mind to affirm human dignity, to deliver on human rights, and in shared responsibilities to the global common good. So there are, you know, the, the number of principles in Catholic social thought are a little bit fluid and in flux. It depends on where you look, but I'll say there are 10 principles of Catholic social teaching. And again, these are moral principles meant to help inform our conscience so that each person, given their own abilities and situation and limitations, that they can discern how to adopt and apply these moral principles. And the foundation is the dignity of the human person. So reading, you know, the gospel and seeing the way that God, that Jesus embraced the dignity of every person, but especially the outcast, the sinners and the shunned, uh, that, that points back to Genesis 126, where we see that human beings are made in the image and likeness of God, that we are re reflections of the divine, we are representatives of the divine, and we are internally related to the divine by virtue of our humanity. I always think of Psalm 139 that tells us we are wonderfully made by God, that God delights in us and in each and every human being. That's really the foundation. And that because of those those views on the inherent worth and value of the human person, that corresponds to unalienable human rights that we that are not just you know freedoms from encroachment or interference, but also deliverables, right? Like that freedom is not just freedom from interference. It is also freedom for taking care of one another. And, and so when we're talking about rights, there are, there are negative rights, you know, so that people can't tell us what to, to believe or say, right? So freedom from coercion. But there are also positive rights, you know, that we do have access to the necessities for life, 
you know, access to education and shelter and housing and nutrition, all the things that are necessary for human flourishing. So that first foundation moves really easily to the second, that second point of, of human rights. And that human rights are not only for individuals, but for the entire human community. So the real two pillars of Catholic social teaching are, are human dignity and the common good, which resists any temptation to think only of self-interest or of, of narrow group egotism, where we're only interested in you know, what's good for me and my tribe or my nation that we're always supposed to look at the entire human community. And, and even when we take seriously the principle of ecological stewardship and environmental sustainability, that we consider, as Genesis 9-9 points out, that we are covenant partners with non-human creation. I mean, that's something I didn't learn till graduate school. But when you open up Genesis to chapter 9, verse 9 and 10, you see that after the flood, God makes a covenant with Noah, Noah's descendants, and the animals of the ark and the plants of the earth to say there's a three-way covenant and that we are accountable to how we treat not only our neighbors, but also all of creation. And, and that's why that, that focus on the global common good is so important because humans are social and that command to love God is inseparable from the command to love our neighbor as ourself. And the other principles really are related to that. So you have the principle of family life, that, that the family life is the first and, and vital cell of society, that, that social health depends on love and fidelity and stability and commitment in families. And so the well-being of, of families is essential for the common good and for the welfare of any society. But I think in an American society, not only do we have to fight kind of a hyper-individualism where we're turned more inwards on ourselves and our own self-interest and our own rights and freedoms, but we also see this reflected in a lot of families where families are too often turned inward and, and what's best for my spouse or my children. And, and we fight like the Dickens for my family, but we don't necessarily see that the family should also be oriented to the common good and to the welfare of our neighbors and to see society as a family of families, which is really where the principle of solidarity comes in, right? Solidarity resists any kind of exclusivism or tribalism that puts people into categories of us and them and, and tries to remind us that there's only us uh, because we are all equals in God's eyes and all belong to God's single human family. And the, the way to deliver on solidarity is through the principle of participation. So to make it possible for people to participate in civic society, to exercise their political duties. Uh, and again, here, political doesn't mean partisan, right? Not Republican or Democrat, but reflecting what Aristotle, Aristotle's vision of, of the polis, right? The, the, the public, the community, that that's what it means to be political, to take responsibility for what's public. Uh, so that we can say faith is personal, but it's never private, right? Because that would just re reduce it to some kind of pietistic devotion that fails to adequately love our neighbor as ourself. Uh, so that principle of participation means rolling up our, our sleeves and getting to work and exercising our civic duties, participating in the economic sphere, contributing to society and not just benefiting from society. And, and families do that, individuals do that, communities do that. But that principle of participation is really important especially for liberation theology, because it's, it's really trying to kind of move the needle from charity, you know, kind of the unilateral aid or assistance that is kind of like this horizontal line, you know, from the donors to the recipients, from the service providers to the service recipients that can be kind of discolored by pity 
or even condescension, kind of a, a paternalistic looking down on, oh, you poor people. But the problem with charity, well, there are two problems really. One, it kind of cultivates a dependence on the recipients of aid, right? That they kind of have to wait for people to show up and be generous with them. And the other problem is that it really only puts a Band-Aid on the problem, right? So if if we encounter someone who's experiencing homelessness, it can be an act of real charity to look them in the eye, in the eye to recognize their humanity, maybe to open up our wallet or our purse to give them a few dollars so that they can go into a restaurant and be a paying customer and not be treated with scorn or contempt and you know get something hot to drink or eat in, in the middle of a frigid winter day or in the summer to get respite from the heat and to go in and be able to use the restroom and be treated like a human being. That, I mean, that's an act of real kindness and compassion to, to respond to a person in need immediately. But it also does nothing tomorrow for that person. And it also does nothing to prevent the root causes of homelessness, which are you know often linked to mental health, to substance abuse, to a, a lack of affordable housing, to insufficient employment services, uh, to people who are experiencing trauma. I mean, some estimates suggest that upwards of 40% of people experiencing homelessness in our country are veterans, people who are returning from war. You may know the statistic that something like 27 veterans die by suicide every day, really. So these are people who are in desperate, desperate situations. And that few dollars that we might give them might bring some, some momentary comfort and consolation, but it doesn't actually solve the problem. So you know, the analogy I often use in the classroom is comes from a story. I think it's a it's a Native American parable where there's a woman walking in the woods and she hears someone calling from the river and they're drowning. So she runs to the river and pulls them out and saves their life. And this person's very grateful. And then they go on their way. And the next day the woman's walking in the forest again and she hears someone yelling from the river. And this person's drowning too. And she goes, runs over and pulls this person out and they are very grateful, grateful and then go on their way. Well, you know, charity is pulling people out of the river, which is a, a good and just act. And at the same time, it is insufficient if we never go upstream and find out why people keep falling in the river and do something about the bridge that's broken and, and causing people to fall in. And that's the work of justice. And so when we're talking about participation, we're not only talking about participation and meeting immediate needs, but ultimately in trying to advocate for the systems and structures, the practices and policies that will actually provide for a just distribution of goods, of adequate access to resources to try to level the playing field in terms of opportunities. And, and, and to do that at the lowest effective level, which is where the principle of subsidiarity comes in, that although we need to think about things on the macro level and from the institutional level, very often it's hard to come up with one size fits all solutions. And so I think one of the geniuses of Catholic social teaching is to invoke this principle of sub subsidiarity that the people on the ground, the people who are affected by the problem, they very often understand what's causing the problem and are the best informed to try to do something to solve the problem. And so we can't just show up thinking, you know, here I am to save the day and, and kind of the epitome of the white savior complex. We show up and we listen and learn from people and, and try to give them the tools that they need and the opportunities and resources that they need so that they can be uh, problem solvers in their own right and agents of their own future. And so, you know, other principles include property ownership, the universal de destination of goods, you know, that, that uh, we have to make sure that people have 
equitable access to resources and opportunities, uh, that they're, they're paid fairly for work. So the dignity of work is another principle that people should have just compensation for their labor, that they should have the freedom to organize and form unions so that they can advocate for worker protection. I mean, we wouldn't have the weekend <laughs> or the 40-hour work week if it weren't for unions. Certainly wouldn't have workers' comp if it weren't for unions. And so the, the, the rights of, of workers to organize and, and to, to make sure that, that companies are oriented to the welfare of the, the workers and not just answerable to the, the stockholders or the board of trustees or the board of directors, uh, that's really important so that there's more of a power sharing model and, and to try to prevent against exploitation and greed. Economic development is really important, right? Uh, so that we, we don't stand idly by when there is exploitation. I mean, I think the continent of Africa is a great example. Africa is just a history of exploitation in terms of all the natural resources on the surface of the land and in mines, water and minerals, human labor that have just been extracted and exploited and, and put into the hands of, of wealthy elites with very little return to the, to the continent. And whatever aid comes back in to the continent of Africa is just a tiny fraction of what's been extracted and exploited. And, and so uh, Pope John Paul II, Benedict XVI, and Pope Francis have all been trying to emphasize this phrase of integral human development, that we have to think about this on the local, on the regional, and the global level of trying to create systems and structures that are much more equitable and humane, and, and to try to confront the beliefs and practices that are permissive of exploitation and extraction. Peace and disarmament is a really important principle. Uh, th there's more and more in development here on trying to wage nonviolence and to lift up examples where nonviolence has been effective in trying to end conflict and prevent conflict, to prevent the proliferation of nuclear weapons and to, to end the, uh, or, or to actually um, cap and stop the, the production of nuclear weapons, not only because of, of the threat to human life, but also the natural environment. I mentioned previously the principle of economic or ecological stewardship and sustainability, which was really uh, accentuated in, in Pope Francis's 2015 encyclical Laudato Si. And, and, and then finally, I think that the last, but certainly the most important for this conversation is the principle of the preferential option for the poor which I think is really poorly understood. And part of that is the translation of the word option from Latin, which means to choose or to exercise your will, you know, to opt as in, you know, I'm making a decision. And it's not optional, uh, but in English, I think it can sometimes sound like the preferential option is optional. Instead, what it's saying is that as a matter of justice, especially to try to level an unequal playing field, to correct against unjust inequalities, that our first priority should go to the most vulnerable and in need. And, and this is not a new invention. You know, in the Hebrew scriptures, the command to love your neighbor as yourself is repeated twice. But the command to love the stranger, the widow, and the orphan, the people who were not seen as having any status, who were stripped of any protection or privilege, the most vulnerable members of any community, that command was repeated 36 times. Uh, which shows that this preferential option for the neediest among us. And, and that's not only something that rings through in the Hebrew scriptures or in, in the prophets like Isaiah and Amos and Micah, but it certainly strikes to the very core 
of Jesus' teaching and healing ministry. You know, the, the word sinner uh, really sh- should be better translated as outcast. So when Jesus is spending time with sinners, it's, it's not that these were people that were, were bad people. They weren't morally bankrupt people. These were the, the, the individuals who were considered untouchable and unworthy, impure, beyond God's grace, outside of God's plan of salvation, the people who, who've been rendered invisible and unheard, those who question if they, if they matter, if they count, if they belong. And certainly that, that's a category of people today, just as much as it was in Jesus' time. And by, by drawing near to them, by sharing life with them, by breaking bread with them, Jesus was showing his contemporaries that no one is unworthy. We, we can't write off any individual. Dorothy Day always points out that the gospel takes away our right forever to distinguish between the deserving and the undeserving poor. No one is undeserving. And uh, she also adds, you know, my love for God is only as great as the person I love the least. And so we are challenged today to think about who are the people that are hard for us to love or those people whose, whose needs we remain unmoved by or that we might be blind to or, or deaf to or numb to. Pope Francis is, is constantly denouncing this globalization of indifference that keeps us from being moved by the misery of uh, our brothers and sisters. And I always think of Matthew 25, you know, Jesus' last public sermon, the last thing that he wanted to say before he's betrayed and handed over and executed as a threat to the Roman Empire. And it's, you know, this last, last judgment scene where the king sits down on his throne and, and tells the sheep that they're saved and the goats that they're damned. And the sheep don't know their sheep and the goats don't know their goats. And it has nothing to do with saying that, the, you know, the sheep are Jews and the goats are Gentiles or that the sheep were pious and the goats were in, you know, indifferent to God. You know, the criterion for salvation in this story surprises everyone, the, the sheep and goats alike. And Jesus says, you know, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink. I was hung, I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was in prison and you visited me. I was naked and you clothed me. And the sheep say, I have no idea what you're talking about. When did we do this? And Jesus says, what you do for the least of your brothers and sisters, you do for me. That's the criterion of salvation. You know, now what's in our head? That's even, not even what's in our heart in terms of whatever our motivation might be or our intention. You know, we might will good without actually doing it. It's, it's how do we actually act? How do we exercise our free will? And what are we doing to meet the needs of the least, the lost, and the lowly? Which is where Jesus identifies himself and says, if you want to find me, this is, this is where I'm standing. You know, the, the face of the poor is where we see the face of Christ. And then Jesus turns to the goats and says, you're out of luck because I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was naked, you gave me nothing to wear. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I was in prison, you did not visit me. And the goats say, what are you talking about? Surely if we had known it was you, we would have done something. And she says, what you do not do for the least among you, you do not do for me. And so that preferential option for the poor really underscores that that biblical tradition that makes us accountable to the weakest, the most vulnerable, the ones at the peripheries, and asks us to, to put our lots t- together, you know, to, to cast our future together, which again, resists that, that unilateral aid of charity where we give out of our abundance or when it's comfortable or convenient and pushes us toward the work of justice to try to try to create systems and structures, practices and policies that defend human dignity, that deliver on human rights, that make us co-responsible for the global common good.
Thank you, Marcus, for that rich overview of Catholic social teaching. And I wonder, Marcus, I know that you teach Catholic social teaching in uh, some capacity to students at Xavier University. How do students tend to respond to Catholic social teaching? What do they think about it? What about it surprises them? Yeah, I mean, I think their experience is much like my experience where, um, you know, I get a lot of students who've been born and raised in the Catholic Church, Catholic educated all the way since kindergarten. And they say, what, what is this? You know, they're, they're really surprised to learn about this really rich and prophetic body of magisterial teaching. And they're curious why it doesn't get talked about more, you know, from the pulpit, or they don't see it more reflected in the bulletin, or why it doesn't get highlighted in the classroom. Um, you know, it, it's very often lamented as the church's best kept secret, uh, which uh, is really lamentable. And, I, you know, I think it, it gives people a sense of hope that we can look at the world and not settle for the world as it is, uh, that it really stretches our imagination, the, the sacramental imagination that, that sees that everything is sacramental, that, that God's presence and power is mediated everywhere we look, you know, that comes from the, the Jesuit charism, seeking God in all things, right? That, that very often we try to see God in the world, but I think that's a little bit wrongheaded. You know, God, God is found everywhere because the world exists within the reality we call God, and that God is calling and empowering us to be, you know, this new creation that that St. Paul writes about in the second letter to the Corinthians, you know, that we are a new creation after the resurrection. That's something I love uh, reading in, in the work of John Sabrino, where he says, you know, the resurrection is not only a historical event, it changes reality. And we should live now already as risen beings, stretching our imagination of what is possible because we have been transformed in and through the resurrection, that more is possible now because Jesus has conquered sin and death. And of course, you know, he, he connects that to trying to take down the crucified peoples from their crosses. And that can sound awfully daunting, but I think if we keep our eyes fixed on the resurrection and, and try to be as attentive and, and responsive as possible to the grace that is building and perfecting on our nature, as, as Aquinas says, right? Calling us to be God's uh, partners in the world, to cooperate with that grace. You know, Aquinas talks about charity, that love as friendship in God, that when we love God and neighbor, we're, we're becoming friends with God. And, and that's really the vision, you know, to be cultivate friendship. That's actually how the catechism describes the principle of solidarity as social charity and, and, and public friendship, instead of having these dyads that we actually try to create the relationships and uh, the communities that defend human dignity and, and deliver on human rights. And these principles are those guidelines. And, and I, my students are hungry for that alternate vision or, or trying to raise our eyes beyond what is to what more is possible, especially if, if we know we can rely on God to help provide all that we need to defend human dignity and, and deliver on human rights. You know, that it's not just up to us, but that that God is is working in and through us. And, and so I, I I'm I'm always, I mean, that's one of the things I love about being a college professor and being in the classroom. I get so much energy from my students because they they do want to be problem solvers. They care about 
the wounds in and around them and they want to respond and they're looking for resources. And, and that's really what Catholic social teaching is about. It's a resource for moral wisdom because we're not the first people to ask about, you know, sin and, and, and injustice and suffering and to figure out how do we come up with some kind of adequate response or to try to prevent these wounds from happening in the first place. You know, if, if we really took seriously um, these principles, I think we could prevent just as many problems as we, as we would try to solve. And, and I hope that through this podcast and, and through, you know, the education that's happening in, in so many different Jesuit apostolates and, and other apostolates, you know, both thanks to vowed religious and ordained folks and, and, and lay people, that we can tap into that hunger that people have to, to look at a, a wounded world and to see ourselves as agents of hope and healing. I recall, Marcus, my experience in college at Wake Forest University, and I majored in religion. And I think it was my sophomore year, I had a professor, we were going through theories of religion, and I think we were discussing Max Weber and his Protestant work ethic. And the professor began a little five-minute mini sermon on the difference between the Protestant work ethic and Catholic social teaching. And I thought to myself, I'm Catholic. I've never heard of Catholic social teaching. <laughs> so what is it? And I think that much like your experience of students, Marcus, at Xavier, I think I felt similarly. Uh, why had this not been presented to me as, or maybe it was presented to me, but but I just don't remember it. But either way, I feel like it was hidden. And as I began to dive more deeply into Catholic social teaching, it really animated me and opened up worlds for me. And so I'm glad that you are doing that with students at Xavier. It makes me very happy. Thank you for joining this first installment of our conversation with Marcus Mesher on Catholic social teaching. We'll continue next time with Catholic social teaching's relationship to liberation theology specifically, as well as get into Marcus Mesher's new book, The Ethics of Encounter. But for now, let us close with a prayer, this time taken from Pope Francis's document, Evangelii Gaudium. This is a prayer to our Blessed Virgin Mother, Mary. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Star of the new evangelization, help us to bear radiant witness to communion, service, ardent and generous faith, justice and love of the poor, that the joy of the gospel may reach to the ends of the earth, illuminating even the fringes of our world. Mother of the living gospel, wellspring of happiness for God's little ones, pray for us. Amen. Alleluia. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.